Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Knollcast. Big thanks to our title sponsor, Louisiana Hot Sauce. Three simple ingredients, one fantastic product, driving force behind the Knollcast. And as always, we thank them. Bud, we'll uh, have a couple of listener questions here that we'll uh, jump into. Um, some good stuff. This will be just kind of a bi-week podcast. We actually just recorded something uh, that we think we'll be releasing for you guys in a couple of days, kind of extra content as well. So thank their title sponsor. We've got a ton of Patreon questions, a couple we'll grab from Twitter and email as well. And uh, with that, let's jump into it. Let's do this thing, man. Uh, so leading off from the last show, we're going to have a couple shows for you here during the bye week and uh, in the next week. Ryan wants to know, Kentucky played receiver Lynn Bowden at quarterback in a chunk of their games last year. How did teams adjust to Bowden as the season progressed, and how did Kentucky counter those adjustments? Uh, can that inform our thinking about how the rest of the season plays out with Travis at the helm? So I, this is a really interesting question, and I'm glad that Ryan asked it. Uh, so last year, Kentucky had some injuries at the quarterback position. Uh, and they had to figure out a way to try to win some games. And so much like Florida State staff this year, they they set about doing so. They had a kid named Lynn Bowden uh, who was a receiver. Now, he was a quarterback in high school, uh, you know, ran around a lot, not necessarily the best thrower, obviously. He was a physical beast. I mean, the guy was just really, really, really good uh, at, at running around. He's, I would say, more athletic. Than, uh, than than Jordan Travis was. I, I believe he's on an NFL team now as, as a non non QB. So he took over. Um, I think he played like the last third of the season, if I if I recall, maybe, maybe a little bit more, uh, and finished with uh, seventy four passing attempts on the year. They were running the ball like a lot more than Florida State was. I mean, Lynn Bowden had one hundred and seventy nine rushes last year. And 74 passing attempts. Jordan Travis is going to have way more than 74 passing attempts if, if he completes the year as FSU starting quarterback. Um, Bowden's a more dynamic athlete. A couple key differences, I, I would say, between what Louisville, uh, or excuse me, between what Kentucky had and, and what FSU has. Uh, Kentucky also had some really good running backs on, the, on that team last year. Cavassier uh, Smoke is pretty good. Chris Rodriguez was one of the most efficient runners. In the SEC, uh, Asim Rose was was not bad for them, and they had been running that offense for for quite a while. Uh, it also, I think, is probably mm, probably miscredited a little bit for why Kentucky won down the stretch. He absolutely gave them a shot to win in a lot of those games, but Kentucky's defense was nasty as hell down the stretch. They had a very good offensive line that has that has several guys who are either in the NFL or will be in the NFL fairly soon. And so here's the point totals they had down the stretch. 24 against Arkansas. They won the game 24-20. Arkansas was one of the worst teams in the country last year. Uh, they scored zero against Georgia and lost 21-0. They scored 29 against Missouri in, I believe, a turnover-fueled number that I don't think their offense did a whole lot in that game. And Missouri at that point, I think that was back when Kelly Bryant, the Clemson transfer, had been hurt for Missouri. Uh, they lost to Tennessee 13-17. to They beat Vanderbilt. I mean, that's Vandy. This FSU team would smoke Vandy. 38-14. Uh, to I think Vandy's the second worst Power 5 team in the country, aside from Kansas, 
They beat Tennessee Martin, which is an FCS team. They did beat that Louisville team last year, 45-13 to 13, to their credit. And then they beat Vautech in the bowl game. And the literally, like the Lynn Bowden rule for what he'll be remembered for in college football is that now you can be ejected for things that happen up to three hours before game time as opposed to just like half an hour or whatever the prior rule was because he, he started that fight with the Virginia Tech players pregame, but they couldn't eject him for it because technically it was too early uh, for the refs to issue an ejection. They just totally committed to running, like the Wildcats ran the Wildcat. They were, they were basically running Wildcat with him. They only let him throw 74 passes on the season. His completion rate was 47%, which I think is lower than Jordan's. Yards per attempt, 4.7. He had a 3-3 three to three touchdown-interception ratio. Look, Jordan Travis is not a good thrower of the football, but he is not one of these guys who is like a receiver playing quarterback position. You know, there is a difference there. If FSU wants to lean into running Jordan Travis more this year, I, I think that's, that's fine, assuming he gets healthy. Maybe incorporate more of those triple option elements d- down the stretch, really lean into that as, as the identity. I don't really know how defense is adjusted to Kentucky because at that point, you know, Kentucky, w- when they went to, to Bowden, I believe was two and three uh, on the year where they were out of the East race and they really weren't scoring a whole lot of points with him in there. I mean, that, that, that team was led by its defense and you know, a, a pretty decent offensive line. I did find their, their rushing and passing SP Plus ranks, Ingram. You'll be interested to note this. Uh, they were 12th in the nation in rushing and 114th in passing. And they, they kind of counteracted that by basically never passing. Yeah. Uh, they also hit a lot of really big runs. Really big runs. They, they, they did a good job with that. I, I don't actually know how they countered the adjustments that teams were, were making to them. I don't know. I'd be interested to see... If, if I go back and watch a Tennessee game and then what they did against Louisville. Louisville's defense last year was bad. It, it's bad again this year, you know, despite what they did at FSU. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question, man. I mean, that is a, a good point of reference. If it's not a perfect uh, example of what Florida State finds, it may be as close to one as there could be in, in recent days. So uh, from there, we'll move to Chris's question. With the D looking so bad, do you see any obvious places where improvement could be made? Is there a specific issue with the secondary of the defensive line. I know the linebackers are hoarding coverage, uh, but this can't be that simple. Chris, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, it is not that simple. I, also, the linebackers are hoarding coverage and they're, uh, you know, not great in run responsibility either. Uh, this defense is a, is a complex blend of, uh, of, of disappointment, I think, of overestimating where they were from the coaches, how much they were able to install and the understanding. And then also some guys that were injured and also some guys that I think were a hell of a lot better than they actually were, whether that was just false, uh, false bravado, if it was false bravado gained from, you know, beating up an offensive line unit that was pretty woeful, particularly at the beginning of camp. I'm not sure. Obviously, Hamza Nazaldine would be as close of a thing as you could find to a a cure-all or at least a, a dramatic improvement. So much of this defense is built around the safeties and the, and the safeties making plays and the safeties uh, providing a lot of support in the run game. And right now, Florida State just doesn't have the pieces to really run that. So I don't know where there's obvious improvement to be made other than if the defensive line continues to give the effort and play at the level that they have the last two games, that is a big first step. And I know 
that coming off the performance at Louisville, nobody wants to listen to it, but the defensive line was not the problem. And if you continue to get effort from like that from that group, I think ultimately more times than not, you have a better showing than what you had on Saturday. So if you can keep the consistency there, build off of it, I think it's a first step. But uh, yeah, defense has been nothing short of uh, very, very disappointing. I also think buy-in. Mike, Mike Morrell talked about this on, 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 his, on his latest Zoom about how like, there are plays to be made if guys will do their roles and, and do their job. And I agree with you that this defense, I think, put too much of these guys initially. I think the defensive staff has said as much in, in our talks with them, you know, in the press conferences. And I think that they overestimated how much these guys could absorb and how much, how much scheme and just general college football knowledge these guys already had. And I think they found a group that was lacking in those things, lacking in confidence. And I don't think the job they did uh, to instill that confidence uh, was, was the right one. Um, they need to find a way to get these guys to believe in what they're doing and to believe in just focusing on just doing your job, not trying to play hero ball, not trying to make the play and understanding how your job fits into the greater scheme of things and how, if you don't do your job, it can screw things up and they need to be able to clearly communicate that job to them. I'm not sure that's been done that well so far. I mean, you have guys doing things that just don't make sense uh, in relation to what other guys are, are doing. Obviously, the coaching staff is not suggesting that you put two guys in one gap and leave another gap open, but that is the end result at times. You know, you have guys who the type of coverage they're playing on the back end does not match the type of blitz that FSU is running. I don't think that's the way FSU called it, but at the same time, if that's the result, that is somewhat on coaching. It's also somewhat potentially on the player, depending on how well the coach has communicated. This is something we'll probably be able to evaluate you know, a, a little bit better next year. It's also something I think they probably could have avoided if they had a spring, you know, and, and just they'd recognize more of these errors these guys are making. And importantly, they would have time to correct the errors and, and rep, rep the corrections. But yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, getting Hompson back could help. Getting Renardo Green back could help. Also, you know, playing some less explosive offenses coming up could also help you just, obviously, like there'll be some fool's gold in it, but it could build some confidence in you. And you do have Pitt before you have to play Clemson. If you have to play Clemson, I mean, look, dude, there's always the option of COVID or at least just say, say, like, hey, out of an abundance of caution. I've been preaching this since I first started seeing what was coming out of Asia in February. If we can, if we can avoid Clemson, I am here carrying the banner and I am first guy out of the tunnel with that flag. You better believe that. Wisconsin did it today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. No reason to put yourself into that. All right. So Donovan ask uh, here, staying with the defense. The defense seems inexplicably worse than it was under Barnett. Can you do a comparison? If you listen to the Emmett Rice interview after the Louisville game, he seems to blame the defensive performance on selfish players, quote, doing their own thing, end quote. Might this explain the phenomenon much maligned on Twitter that features guys celebrating after they make a play, even though the team is down by three or four scores? Okay, so this is something that I have seen a lot of backlash on uh, about on Twitter. I don't think you're going to get guys to stop this. I, I just don't. You recruit kids from the state of Florida. They're flashy. They want to celebrate when they do something well. Uh, I don't think many of them care if the team is down or up with the celebrating. Can, can Mike Norvell talk to them a little bit and say, hey, scoreboard. All right. 
let's not be over the top celebrating an incomplete pass when it's a ball that you should have picked, you know, or something you didn't do anything on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing for me, dog. If you make, if you make the interception, if you do, even if you're down two or three scores, I'm not going to give you the thumbs up. I'm still going to be disappointed, but at least make the friggin' play. Don't act like you had something to do when the guy drops the ball. And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, you're right. I understand the, the culture that you're talking about. And yeah, and, and honestly, you've kind of got to be a selfish bastard if you're going to play defensive back. You got to have a short memory and you got to be all about yourself and have a ton of confidence that you're going to make the play and that you're the best guy out on the field. And if that, get yourself into some kind of mental place by uh, celebrating everything you do, then that's fine, but at least do it. You know, don't, uh, don't celebrate because the guy in front of you dropped the ball on, on second and 17 and you weren't otherwise in position. I, I, yeah, totally. There is a difference between celebrating when you make a play, despite the fact your team's getting its butt whooped and celebrating a guy dropping a pass that you were actually out of position to defend or just didn't make a play. On the ball. I, I, I think Mike Norvell is capable of telling these guys to knock that off or tone it down, maybe more more appropriately. I agree with him at Rice's comments, though. You, you do see guys, he uses the word selfish, you know, I guess, but I I think it's it's I think it's guys not trusting, to be honest. And when when they don't trust, they go on and, and do their own thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I do. And I and you've talked about this. Um I think there's a lot to it. You know, most of these guys have been the best player on the field that they've ever stepped foot on, or at least one of the best. And all of a sudden, you're a four-star recruit. You're a five-star recruit. You're on a program that had much success. You're not nearly the level of player that you you thought you were going to be, or at least playing at the level that you think you are. And there's a tendency to want to overreact to things. And there's there's a, you know, kind of an insecurity that comes uh, from being an athlete when success isn't there. Um, and it's kind of hard to find and it's really challenging. Um, so yeah, I, I think that leads to it. I mean, I'm not, I'm real hesitant to, I'm real hesitant to talk about my own athletic experience because I, I didn't play at Florida state and I didn't play that level. I will tell you that there were, I went for two years without losing a wrestling match. Uh, and then I started getting beat because I started wrestling guys that were actually good and I struggled with it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to deal with it. Things that I was doing previously and was successful with all of a sudden weren't working. And uh, it was in my own athletic experience, it was the most challenging time that I had. And I knew I wasn't performing at the level that I thought I should or, or was projected to. And that, that can be a challenge. I, I agree with you there. Um, and yet, like, you have to figure out which guys will, will buy in. I, I do like that it's a senior and Emmett Rice saying that kind of stuff. I, I know we have a related question coming up um, about that, about seniors on, on this team. It, it it does seem like like that they have not bought in to what this defensive staff is selling. Now, why? I don't know. My guess is it's mostly related to a lack of time, confusion, not not having time to really kind of work out the kinks. I was talking to a guy who who runs personnel for for a college team, not Florida State, for a different story I'm working on for 24-7. And we were talking about the increased scoring in the SEC and increased scoring in some of these leagues. And you know, I'm I'm of the opinion that defense is usually ahead of the offense because offense is more of a team game and defense is more of a collective individual effort, as long as everybody does their jobs, right? 
he's like, well, the SEC scoring is way up. I'm like, well, a big part of that is they have tripled the pick sixes that they had last year, which is really going to increase your scoring, especially in a, in a limited sample setting. But I said, all right, so let's say you're right, that scoring's up because offense is up, which so far, I don't think it is necessarily, but let's just say. He said, the reason why I think you're seeing some bad defensive play is because you can't rep defense, specifically like some of your run defense stuff, can't rep this in seven on seven. You can't really rep it on air. It's a reactive thing. So you have to rep it in practice. And a lot of these teams are not able to go full go in practice, you know, and because because a lot of the COVID stuff, they're, they're doing some of these, you know, half practices, half, half, half squad practices. Not that Florida State's necessarily doing that. He's like, it's just, it's, it's hard because we're not getting the same amount of reps in a reactive setting to where we can take what we're taught and apply it and make sure we're reacting to, to the stimulus, you know, which is what the offense is doing correctly over and over again. Which is why I do think if you had, if you had a spring, maybe you, maybe you don't have some of these problems. LSU, by the way, also seems to be struggling with, with this a little bit. I don't know if you, if you saw, somebody tweeted the, uh, the ESPN explosive play stuff at, at us, and I, you'd be shocked to learn that Florida State is not giving up the most explosive plays in the country. That would be uh, amongst teams that have played at least two games. LSU, with 17% of all plays faced on the year, explosive. But, I mean, FSU's 14%, so they're not, they're not great. They're not that far away. You're right. And, and I will say this real quickly. I, even last year, I was saying that uh, the further we get away from Harlan Barnett, the more I think we'll realize that that, that wasn't the problem. I mean, he's not a perfect coach. He's not a, a guy that I think is going to go on to be a D.C. at Georgia or something like that. But that was not... That was not the problem last year, and that was not an incompetent member of the coaching staff. So, and they were trying to run two different schemes. I do think that, in addition, you recruited to run a bit of a three-four the last two years, and now you are not running a three-down set for the most part. So, some of your edge personnel is is kind of ill-suited to what you want to do, and you whiffed on the tra- on the transfer you took from Baylor. The Williams kid can't play, so that's that's not helping them. NOLCAST also brought to you by the legendary team at Hamilton Home Loans. Shannon and Chad, awesome job. Over 100 NOLCAST listeners have got their home loan or refi. I did both. Through Shannon and Chad, 844-FSU-LOAN. Talking guy tonight, he's like, man, I talked to Shannon for an hour on the phone about, about, about my mortgage, but also just commiserating about, about the NOLs. And uh, he's like, I, I can see why that guy's so good. It's just he's so personable. He, he knows what he's doing, and he's really really got, got your best interest at heart and is looking out for you. So, you know, I asked him how long it would take to, uh, to overcome the closing costs on my refi. And he had the numbers just immediately for me. He, he's prepared. He's knowledgeable about the industry and he's very helpful. So give him a call 844-FSU-LOAN if you are in the market for a mortgage or a refi. Our most prolific questioner, Kesna, uh, says, Hey, I've been going through the five stages of grief. I'm currently in the depression stage like others. I hear you preach the year zero narrative, but that applies to administrators and boosters. doesn't really apply to recruits, or does it? 24-7 Sports maintains a roster talent index, ranking in which we have uh, been in the top six until this year, where we dropped from six to 16. That 10-point drop was the largest of anybody in the top 25 of the talent index ranking. What is even more concerning is next season, we should see a similar drop in talent unless we dramatically improve our recruiting this season. Should we expect an FSU roster of three-star athletes to compete with Miami, North Carolina, Clemson without Trevor? Uh, no. No, you, you really shouldn't. Um, this is going to be a long-term rebuild. 
and they're not recruiting at a level that's going to going to quicken the rebuild. They're on track to rebuild this thing in like five years. This is a long-term rebuild. They don't have any juice on the trail right now for the most part. They're having to try to uncover hidden gems and hit the portal. They don't really have a product to sell on the trail and they have had no opportunity to go out and, and get those guys. The one thing I will say is that the 24-7 sports team talent composite is more of a lagging indicator than it is a leading indicator. Um, if, if you want to kind of use those market terms, I, I don't look at it to tell me like who's next for the most part. Now, granted, maybe that's just like kind of t- tend to know because I, I do a lot of the research myself for us at 24-7. Uh, but no, like can they compete with Miami and North Carolina? Uh, that'll be quarterback dependent. Honestly, we'll see what Miami has at QB after Dierk King, assuming he doesn't decide to come back. With Clemson, they they have you know DJ Uyangale, and if he turns out to be a stud, no, you're not going to compete with Clemson. Not not in the near term. Um, you're just trying to rebuild this thing, kind of brick by brick, and it's going to take a while. You made a choice to fire Willie. It's a choice that I understand why they made it. It was probably the right choice when you consider a lot of the financial stuff they were facing. It's also when you made that choice, you commit yourself to a long-term rebuild. I mean, I don't know, I don't know where to say it. I feel like I say it every single week. If you have two of these early signing period classes in a three-year span, your roster is going to suck for a while because some of these kids you, you think are good, other staffs didn't want them for reasons that they won't tell you about because they, they thought this kid was a bad kid or just, you know, whatever. That's kind of the reality of this thing, man. It's going to take a while just, just to get back to good, much less elite. Yeah. I think the race is, uh, or the first stop at the race is to get to a point to where you can look parents and kids in the eye and tell them that you're going to go to a, a program that's well-run competitive and is going to start winning the games that it's supposed to. So, you know, if you need to go uh, eight and four, nine and three uh, before you kind of start to transition to stuff like that, you're just not at a place where you're going to go sign a five-star tackle or anything else like that right now. So uh, I think you've got to have consistency. You've got to tell kids that they're coming into a good situation. One of the reasons why the Jennings commitment hurt or decommitment hurt so much is that, uh, yeah, he's a really good player, and Bud and I have been pretty aggressive about saying that he's possibly starting at you for you next year, although maybe not at linebacker if he were to have come. But Florida State's in a strange place, or not a strange place, kind of a, a unique and a good place where got a ton of legacy recruits coming coming over the next two to three years, and uh, you know that's going to be a thing. And you got guys that are named, you know, junior for some of the better players in program history, and and uh, super highly rewarded uh, defensive ends coming out of South Florida and stuff like that. And Lord knows Antonio Cromarty has, uh, has watered the fields of, uh, of uh, prospects and there'll be a lot of Cromartys coming down the pipeline. So uh, it's just a place where you've got to get, uh, it's a race to look people in the eye, tell their parents that they're going to be at a program that's going to make them better. That's going to have some level of consistency and is not going to be the dysfunctional uh, blink show that it has been the last 36 to 48 months. I agree. The other thing I'll say here is quarterback, right? Quarterback, quarterback, quarterback. This is a game that benefits passing the ball. The rules currently benefit the teams who can throw the football. If you nail quarterback, you, you can level up faster than other teams. 
I'll give you an example. NC State is on is on FSU schedule right now. I'm picking Florida State probably to win that game based on what I saw out of NC State. But if they had Devin Leary, I'm not picking Florida State to beat NC State with Devin Leary because Devin Leary can play. NC State, when he's in there, is one of the top 10 most explosive offenses in the country. His backup, Bailey Hockman, can't play a lick. All right, it doesn't mean he can't beat Florida State but because Florida State's not any good this year. I mean, there's a huge difference between having a really good quarterback and, and a bad quarterback or just a decent quarterback. I think Norvell is most likely going to hit on quarterback based on the fact that you know they already have Travis, who's uh, you know at, at the very least kind of stops the bleeding. You have Purdy. You have you know maybe down the line if he develops Rodemaker, and you also have Altmaier most likely going to stick. I I think there's a decent chance that you hit on quarterback, and if you do, then you start cooking with jet fuel. It's it's just it's just a different game. Okay, next question comes from Corey. This is actually a question from Twitter. Uh, Corey says, after reading uh, Brendan Sinone's article about the playing time, true freshmen are getting under Mike Norvell. Uh, compared to previous coaching staffs or other year one teams, is Norvell sneakily making the best lemonade from bitter limes? Excuse me, best lemonade from bitter lemons. And what may be a throwaway season? It seems to me he is using the unprecedented season as an opportunity to use in-game reps to evaluate talent and set up a program for a true year one in 21 in the absence of a real spring this year may not be unreasonable to expect a significant improvement for 21. First of all, I would recommend you go, you go read Brendan Snow's article on this. Uh, Florida state is playing more true freshmen this year than just about any team in the country. So like that's, we talked about this, you can go to a youth movement without having a press conference to announce your youth movement. And that's kind of what they're doing. Now, I don't think that they are doing it. I don't think they're doing it in lieu of trying to win games. I think they're just trying to figure out what the hell these guys can do because they didn't get that spring and they didn't get, you know, summer workouts where their strength coaches can tell, Hey, this guy, you know, can do this. This guy can do that. They, they don't know what a lot of their players can do. Like they're, it's just, it's so weird that we're coming up on Halloween and they're trying to figure out the abilities of some of their guys still. That's that's that makes this year to me very unique. But they are getting reps for their young guys, and I, they are evaluating their young dudes on the fly. And certainly, I'm more in favor of this than just keep running the old guys out there who aren't getting done. But it's not a throwaway. Like they're trying to win. Yeah, they're trying to win, and they're also keeping the players like uh, you know Bavion Johnson, uh, Emmett Rice, uh, the guys that are still there, the guys that are the culture guys, the guys that we talked about is kind of the only way you can do this. You can't go to Bavion and sit him because the guy's gotten better. The guy's gotten better in the last six months than he has the previous thirty six on campus. Uh, Emmett Rice is one of the few players that I have full faith is going to give you everything he has every game. May not be great. He may run into the wrong hole. But that dude has got an empty in the tank for you. Those aren't the guys that get sat. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an interesting situation. It is kind of a somewhat of a stealth youth movement. Um, and it's, uh, you know, will be interesting to see if those stats bear true for, for the back half of the schedule as well. And there's no reason to think they won't. Okay. So, do you want to play this game? I always love a good Noel Cast game. Please. All right. So, Ingram and I were, were talking about, about this game uh, tonight, actually, after we got off this call with the uh, New York City Knowles Booster Club, uh, which is awesome. We were guest speakers there 
Um, they obviously can't have in-person meetings right now. So if y'all don't know, the NCAA has basically given scholarship relief to schools or scholarship limit relief rather to schools uh, in, in the way of if you're a current senior and you want to play next year, this year does not count against you. You, can, you have an extra year of eligibility. Everybody gets an extra year of eligibility. And for next year, at least the way that, that it's told to me by, by the schools I talk to, uh, any senior you take back will not count against the 85 scholarship limit. So you can actually, ha- if you had 15 seniors coming back and you decided that you wanted to keep every single one and they all wanted to come back, uh, you could carry 100 guys, you know, 85 plus, plus the additional 15 if you wanted to. A lot of schools don't have the financial ability to carry that many extra guys. In fact, I think it's going to be pretty rare that you see schools carry 100 plus uh, because all those scholarships cost money. They're not, they're not nothing. But I think if you're Mike Norbell, uh, I thought this would be an interesting game to play. Like which guys, if, if David Coburn came to you and he said, you know, all right, Mike, you can carry, 90. Florida State, we'll we'll pay for five. Which of these guys do you really want back next year, assuming that that, that they actually want to come back? I I think this is an interesting exercise. So I'll just, we'll go and start by position. First dude up I want to ask you about is Wilson, the tight end who they brought in from UCLA. Now we've never seen him play, but clearly, like I like to judge the, the staff's opinion of the roster based on what where they decide to allocate their their transfer portal resources, and we know for a fact they thought this tight end room was bad. I mean, Preston Daniel, White record, blah blah blah. Those guys, you know, whatever. Would you take him back? When he's healthy. Yeah, I, I, if if that was your evaluation of the unit uh, before the season, I don't see any reason why your evaluation would really be that different. Now, McDonald's been a nice. Uh, plus, and I'm not trying to double speak there. He, he's certainly been a, a bigger asset in the past game than I necessarily thought he would have been. But your need for assistance uh, in run blocking and and to bolster what you have on the outside of the uh, you know basically the tackle position remains. And if you thought tight end was one of the first places you addressed in the transfer portal last time. There's no reason to think that it wouldn't still be a priority. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think I think I would take him back as well. Offensive line. So we so you, you you've used one spot so far, and just for people out there, don't go saying, "Hey, the old cast said it, but she only gets to keep five seniors." I'm just trying to be realistic here. I mean, yeah, this is tough, bud, because I think after this unit, I'm going to leave myself with only two left. Um, Love Taylor, no brainer, comes back. Bavion Johnson, if you're going to continue to fight the way you are, you continue to improve. Uh, we're not at a place where we can start casting off guards. I don't think uh, we're. I don't think we're anywhere near it. I would bring him back as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. He's also you know potentially a backup center for you if you needed. He's not a great player by any stretch, but he's he's playing currently right now a pretty good bit, and it's never a bad thing to have too much depth on the offensive line. If if Devontae Taylor decides not to you know try the NFL, if he wants to stay around and get a another graduate degree, or if he needs two years to get his graduate degree or whatever, uh, you'd love to have him back. There's no doubt he's he's been one of your better players on the offense this this season. Okay, so Ingram, you have used three spots so far. Let's go ahead and switch over to the defense. I'm going to read you off the guys on defense, and you can tell me who and why. So you have two spots left in our hypothetical exercise. 
Okay, Janarius Robinson, Williams, the, the, the defensive end from Baylor. I'm not going to count Marvin Wilson. I don't think there's any way in hell he comes back. Leonard Warner, Emmett Rice, Miko Dotson, Carlos Becker. Uh, for this exercise, I'm not going to count Hamsa. I, I think I'll just play David Coburn here, the AD, and say, okay, he's if he comes back, you get a free sixth. Who are those guys? Who, who, who would be your two that you'd want to keep? Yeah, this is interesting. Um, they're, and they're, okay, so this could change. Uh, Dotson, I don't feel like I have a good enough idea of. If, uh, from some of the things we heard, and if he continues to play uh, at a high level, I would maybe try to find room with him. At this point in time, if Janarius wants to come back, I think I'm making, I, you know, I, I, I think I've kind of moved uh, here where previously I would have said, you know, maybe why don't you try your best, whether it be Canada or wherever else. I think right now, if Janarius wants to come back, that you take him and you make room for him and you continue to, you know, use an athlete who appears to be giving you a lot of effort and is, you know, you know what he's going to be and you know what he's never going to be. Uh, but I would bring him back and Emmett Rice if he wanted to come back again. Um, I'm, I'm taking him all day. So with a fourth pick, I guess I'll use Rice, fifth pick Robinson. And if I, I'll say that I haven't closed the book yet on Dotson. Uh, he's still somewhat to be a, a prospect to be evaluated. Okay. I, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, this, I, I think Norvell would probably want those three guys back. Leonard Warner for me is, I, I just don't know if he, uh, I don't want to use the word salvageable. Like as a football player, I, I don't know if you're ever going to get anything out of him that is like FSU level at this point. Emmett Rice has at least shown signs. Janarius, he's not a good player. But he's still a starter for you, and is playing a lot of snaps. So, unless you think you're going to upgrade that position somehow, I think you have to keep him. I agree. Um, and at, at corner, I mean, you're losing Asante Samuel. I this is where if I'm Norvell, and the five guys we already talked about want to come back, this is where I go and say, "Hey, I I need this sixth guy here. Like this is you know I this is a guy who, who I think can help me." Um, because you don't know what you're going to get out of Denton Jones right now. You know, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get out of Brownlee and Tate. That's, you know, that's, that's kind of what, what it is right now. I, I think you would definitely want him back. Uh, corner for me is, is a spot that is going to be important for you. I, I just thought this was a fun exercise, right? Like, which, which of these guys on this team would, would you want to come back? And then remember, here's, here's the trick on this. Next year's guys, we don't think the NCAA is going to give teams scholarship relief. Now, the kids will still have the extra eligibility. But from from what teams I talk to expect is that the NCAA is only going to give relief for schools on the 85 for next season only. So for the 2022 season, you're going to have to find a way to get back down to 85 guys, which either means more roster purge or taking a smaller class in 2022. And because I don't think Florida State wants to take a small class in 2022, because they, I think that's going to basically be a, a bit of a make-or-break class for Mike Norvell, they're going to have to figure out a way to, to trim this roster a little bit on some of those guys. So, you know, I, I guess we'll see what happens. But I, I think there'll be some underclassmen moving on anyway after the season, guys who don't play, guys who are going to already, already be graduated, that, that type of thing. 
In between questions here, we'll, we'll pause to thank our friends at Congruity. Uh, just to be honest with you guys, last time our audio for the ad read was so bad, we had to just cut it. So uh, if you if you get a chance to support Congruity, even if it's just giving them a follow on a Twitter account or anything else like that, uh, a, a, uh, a nice social media nudge would always be appreciated, particularly since their, their read was at the level that we just didn't feel comfortable including in the last podcast, uh, just my audio was choppy and thus it didn't make it in. Uh, but what you would have heard me saying is Congruity is experiencing your business optimizing. <laughs> As a professional employer organization, Congruity helps you stay competitive with HR and business optimization solutions designed to make your business run better, grow faster, and make more money. According to a recent study conducted by National Economist on behalf of the National Association of Professional Employer Organizations, small business who use a PEO are 50% less likely to go out of business, grow up to nine times faster, and have 14% less turnover. Contact our partner, Matt Lewis, at 844-247-4100. Again, 844-247-4100 or Knowles at congruityhr.com. All right, let's go ahead and go here to uh, Corey's question. Corey is kind of in the same vein as Keston, but a little bit different. And I, I think he brings up a, a scenario that, honestly, I had a discussion uh, with a buddy of mine about yesterday or the day before. I, I don't know. All these days kind of run together, and I, I don't really even care anymore because football season is back, and I'm excited. Corey writes, I get the year zero sell. My concerns are thus. Uh, we aren't competing for recruits with the big boys, a la Clemson, UGA, Bama, Ohio State, et cetera. And the closest, biggest P5 schools in our division, Georgia Tech, Louisville, and Miami, all posted wins against the Knowles. It's obvious that after each week of this season, Mike Norvell's hill has gotten steeper. I continue to believe he will be given a longer lease than Willie Taggart. Uh, I guess it'd be harder not to. Uh, however, I am concerned that while the school may be reluctant to move on, the fan base will quickly deteriorate. For example, I expect many malcontents are reserving judgment this season because of COVID-19 and the you know, quote year zero. Uh, but if we post another disappointing season next year, I expect the season this season will be looked at in a far less forgiving light. Uh, if you're the head coach of Florida State, outside of the wins and losses, what are the top three priorities in the short term, three to six months? And what are the top three priorities in the long term, six months to two years? to keep your job. The bonus round, uh, given Jimbo's final season APR problems, Taggart being signed in a hurry the first year of the ESP or of a signing period and then fired after 21 games and a brand new coaching staff being hired and walking right into the COVID-19. Is there any way to imagine a series of events unfolding more deleterious to a program than what the Seminole fans have witnessed in the last five years? Well, uh, they haven't had NCAA trouble, like knocking on wood here pretty hard. I guess that would be something. You know, they haven't had like major scandal. I guess in the last five, trying to think when, yeah, last five years, I think they're pretty scandal free. So that's, that's, that's on the positive side of things. I look, I completely see what Corey's point here is. Um, I, I had a buddy who was complaining to me. He's like, there's just no way that, that Norvell is going to work out. I'm like, it's just incredibly too early just to, to, to make that decision either way. We don't have enough information. We have much less information right now than we ever had before. You know what I mean? Like, because of the COVID stuff. What would your kind of top three prior or top priorities be here in, in the short term for, for Norvell if you're him? My first comment would be just get used to Mike Norvell. Florida State's not in a place to even dream of making a coaching change, nor should they make a coaching change, nor, uh, you know, from a PR perspective or an ability to go out and get the next guy. Um, is a coaching change even a consideration? So 
if you're the head coach of Florida State right now, um, top three priorities in the short term, one, evaluate every person on this roster, get an opinion as to whether or not they want to be here, whether or not they're fully bought in. And, uh, you know, if, if you preach the climb, make sure every person with you is ready to go on this climb and is going to be there with it. And if not, now's the time. With the, with the APR, with the conversations we've had, parting ways is, uh, is many ways there's, you know, addition by subtraction for certain aspects of this roster. Um, this is going to be similar to an answer that we actually just gave on the Zoom call a second ago, but I would, I would have someone that fully focuses on the transfer portal on my staff and have that be their responsibility. Um, it is hard for us to understand exactly how important this is going to be because it's so new, but we know it's going to be altering moment in college football, how people build rosters, how people keep kids. Uh, I think you need to have somebody that that's their real responsibility looks out and Florida state's not just going to need guys for depth. They're going to need guys that can possibly come in and start. And the third one, uh, you know, you look at your staff, I think you've got some real good recruiters, uh, but you don't have anybody that's really fluent in the language of recruiting the state of Florida. Uh, you've got some guys with great knowledge in Tennessee, Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, uh, and that's great, but there's only a certain level of prospect that ultimately you're going to go into those states and get, at least as the program is right now. Maybe if you get back uh, to where you're, you know, one of the more um, – you know, one of the more celebrated programs in the sport, you can get back to signing a cam makers from Mississippi or something like that. But right now, not something that's going to happen for the next four or five years. So uh, if you're going to get those four guys, those four-star, maybe borderline five-star prospects, the guys that really change the trajectory of the program, give you a chance to beat the Clemsons of the world, or at least be competitive with Clemson, beat the Miami and Floridas of the world, then those guys are probably going to come from Georgia and Florida. Uh, and I think you've got to have somebody on your staff, maybe two people, that have a much more uh, richer history and context of recruiting those areas. So the number one thing I would do if I was Mike Norbell would be to try to get a real sense of when David Coburn is going to leave because he's the guy that brought me in along with, you know, some, some key power, power player boosters and president Thrasher. If you have a new AD and things aren't going well, the new AD, you know, is, is going to want his own guy. That's just how this business works. I was asked to evaluate this question from Norvell's perspective, right? I want to know how long I have before it's judgment day for me in this job. Because there's one way I can build this thing. And if you're going to give me the time to do it right, I think it's going to set the foundation better for the long term. There's also kind of a, kind of a, a cutting corners way, right? A, a reactive way, which could work. In the short term, it could also leave you in a bigger hole. So I want to know, like, do I need to have this team competing for conference titles by 2024 or by 2022? Because there's a huge difference. And if it's 2022, I'm probably screwed. So I'm going to cut every corner I can. I'm going to try to just you know go all out and see see what I can do. And and you know may, maybe like if it doesn't work, I'm going to leave this place in a much worse place for the next guy. Because I'm self-interested here. I want to coach at Florida State for a long time. You know what I mean? If they fire me, I don't really care what happens to the program next. Now, if they're certain that I'm going to get time to build this thing right, if they're going to recognize the challenges that I've had here and will recognize incremental improvement, which honestly, 
They just fired the previous guy after 21 games. Not a school that's known for loyalty in recent years. Previous years, certainly. I think that's the number one thing he has to do. If, if I'm Mike Morbell, I'm trying to figure out exactly how long I have, how much support I actually have from this administration. And I suspect it's a pretty good bit because I think he, he would know to call their bluff as far as paying that buyout. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't claim to know everybody of importance in the atmosphere. I will just say the people that I know don't even have conference championships on the tip of their tongues right now. I mean, that, that's not going to be the barometer that Norville is judged by. I think, I think 2022 is, is being a nine and three type team, uh, you know, uh, or a nine and four type team with a win over an in-state rival. I think that's kind of the, the barometer and, and expectations as to where this program uh, projects and, and maybe where the evaluations would be lied. So, and, and, and look, things change a lot, you know, I mean, you continue to lose a bunch of games and uh, you continue to have one of the worst defenses, then yeah, that's probably going to, probably going to change, but I don't think how you look matters. Oh, you know, absolutely. I mean, like how the last guy looked mattered, right? Like they would have been, I think more patient with them had certain things not looked so bad. It was it was more than just losing the games. Yeah, uh, 2022, you play uh, LSU, Florida, Clemson, Miami, at NC State, uh, and you're also playing Louisiana, which is a decent G5 team right now, but I have no idea what they'll look like in 22, because kind of doubt Billy Napier will be there long term. Yeah, I mean, if you go 9-4 and four in 2022 against that schedule, I think you're probably feeling pretty good. Okay, so the priorities in the long term develop a quarterback is the number one priority. I, I think that, that he absolutely has to do uh, quarterback. Can, as we said earlier in the show can be a big time difference maker and that, that could help you out a ton. If you're able to really hit on Chubba Purdy or, or Luke Altmeyer or somebody in the transfer portal or whomever, I mean, that's, we're talking about, you know, long-term type stuff. I agree with you that they need to be, Absolutely sure they have enough aces on this staff. When Florida opens up again next year, you need to be able to hit that, obviously. Um, their product that they're selling right now is not as good as what I think they anticipated it was going to be. Uh, and when your product's not as good, you need better salesmen if you want the same results, right? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're in that business, you know. Like, you got you, you, you to gotta have good salespeople. And I think the other points are, are really the ones you made, man. Like those, those are, are really good points. Uh, making sure that the guys on, on this on this roster are are actually bought in, or at least as, as bought in as you can assess them to be. That's that's key. You got you got to get this team moving in one direction. I, I don't believe he has that yet. Certainly not not everybody. Yeah, no. I mean, I think the expectations as far as long term is that in twenty one moving forward, you you're signing top twelve recruiting classes. I mean, you you know, not necessarily that you're in a place to go. Uh, beat some of the premier programs in the world, but you're starting to clobber uh, enough three, four, and a five or star here and there uh, to start to get back to the kind of the uh, second level of recruiting. Again, you're not beating Ohio State, Bama, Clemson, et cetera, uh, but you are starting to put some room between yourself and the rest of the programs in the ACC, uh, some of those mid-tier programs, and you're starting to carve out uh, a clear trajectory as to where the program's going. Uh, Corey asking a uh, non-Florida State-related question. Also, Bud and Ingram, outside of Doak, what is your favorite college football stadium to watch a game in and why? Uh, Rose Bowl, no doubt. I've been pretty blessed in this job 
to be able to go to a lot of big time stadiums and, and I've been to some stadiums as, as just a fan as well with, you know, non four state games. I've done Death Valley. I've done Death Valley at night. That's pretty cool. Like the real Death Valley, obviously. You know, I've never done Ohio State. I've never done Penn State, you know, for the whiteout. I've done, I've done Bama both pre and, and post renovation. I've done the swamp, uh, old, old Joe Robbie, you know, new, new sun, whatever the hell they call it. Hard rock. Or, yeah, I guess hard rock. Um, you know, the old orange bowl, obviously, you know, dope. But the Rose Bowl is just, what is it? The San Gabriel's in the background. That, that place is just, that's like football paradise, man. That, that is so different. I'm sure my opinion is impacted as well by the weather, which is su- what, what, which year was it where the weather was super, super nice? I'm trying to remember one, one year it was actually kind of colder, but the other year it was, it was really beautiful. Um, being that it was a national championship and then a playoff game probably didn't, didn't hurt my assessment of the atmosphere, but those were, those were really cool, really cool experiences. I assume you're going to pick Rose Bowl. Yeah, I mean that's as that's as unique and kind of picture perfect setting. I mean that feels like I would say that and Augusta National are the only two things that I've ever gone to, and I've been like, you know what, this completely lives up to the hype. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here watching a game, and it feels like somebody has put an Instagram filter on my eyes or something like that. It's just it's ridiculous. Um, are you big into the filter game? I'm not a huge uh, huge person on on Instagram, but uh, I'm you know. <laughs> I'm familiar when somebody's when somebody slapped a filter uh, on me. So, how about in conference? Uh, Georgia Tech at night is cool. That's a unique setting. There, there is no other stadium of major college football that is legitimately right in front of you know. Uh, I think that's the tallest building on the East Coast. It's not in New York City or something like that. So that's that's different. Um, NC State is cool. Not ACC, but like if you want to smaller level ball app state is a hell of a place to go watch a game. Those are, those are some that, that jumped to mind for me. NC state is kind of cool. It's like cut out of like out of the mountains, obviously like, like there's, there's a lot of really different kind of tailgating going on there. There's, there's like, you know, a lot of, a lot of tall pines are all around it. It's, it's just kind of comes out of nowhere. It's like, Oh, boom, the, the stadium. It, it's uh, it feels almost like you're walking to like a high school game. You know, like down, you park, you park way off, and you, and you walk down the road there, uh, and it's built into this bowl. Which I think, if you've never been, that explains how it's, it can be so loud, despite not seeming that loud on TV. It, it just it's it's built down into the ground. Uh, that's that's a good one. I've done Virginia Tech, Inner Sandman, and uh, went and drank the rails beforehand at, at at the famous bar and did the whole experience. That that is legitimately really cool. It's just not as loud as people say it was. I, I didn't think. I was there in 20, 2012, I think. That that was a cool experience. Um, I've never done Boston College. I don't I don't know why. I, I've always thought like I should go up for a Red Sox game and you know, maybe if the Rays were playing up there in the same week, that'd be really nice. But I, I've never ended up doing it. Uh, copy, paste your high school comment, except it doesn't really change. Uh, it just feels like you're going to a high school game and then you're like, Huh. Am I just in a Texas high school football stadium that's slightly bigger than everybody else's? But uh, yeah, so um, we will end tonight uh, with TJ's question. Before we do that, we'll thank our friends at Madison Social. Uh, just great people in general, great partners for us. Uh, they played a, a huge role in facilitating the Zoom call that Bud and I have referenced a couple times uh, here previously. 
And uh, that's just kind of what they do, man. I mean, they, they are enhancers of the experience, whether you're in Tallahassee and eating a Reuben sandwich on the on the patio there, or you're, you know, locked away in the the upper west side of New York City, and you're trying to find a way to connect uh, with with Florida State athletics. So uh, they're just people that we're ever so fortunate to be able to pair with, and we always want to thank them and acknowledge uh, both what they've done for the Nolcast and for Florida State uh, supporters in general. TJ says, with so much negativity around our defense, and rightfully so. I thought I would ask your opinion as to your favorite defense of all time. For me, 97 is my top spot. Recently, you just we watched the 97 game, followed by 2013. Thank you guys for your honest takes, and I look forward to your opinion. All right, who you got here? All right, so the 97 defense was ridiculous. That's uh, hard not to immediately go to uh, for some of our younger listeners. The 97 defense knocked every quarterback out of the game until they played Florida in the last game of the regular season. So... Defensive ends that were ridiculous. I mean, yeah, just a nuts defense. Honestly, um, I'm going to go with the 98 defense. I mean, that was uh, a lot of the same players, but uh, you're talking about guys like, uh, oh, man, you're talking about you still got Corey Simon, or Corey Simon's just kind of starting to hit his stride. Jamal Reynolds as well. Roland Seymour's on that team. Jerry Johnson, who's a guy that's uh, kind of forgotten. That was an exceptional defensive tackle. Uh, Larry Smith is a guy who kind of bounced around between the offensive line, and the defensive line, and ended up being a hellaciously good defensive line. One of my favorite games of all time is the 98 Florida, Florida State game. Uh, and that's a game where, oh, it's got a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's got a lot of stuff. A quarterback throws a ball at Bobby Bowden's head before the game ever starts. Johnson, he got a great right? fight. Doug Johnson, yeah. yeah. Uh, apparently at the behest of Steve Spurrier, which is kind of bizarre and really twisted. Uh, but Florida State really just rushes three, drops eight. Florida's not able to do anything. Uh, the defense is is remarkable. You're playing with Marcus Outson as your quarterback. Uh, you get a you know you get a tip pass that goes for a touchdown. You get a uh, end around pass that uh, Dugans ends up scoring on. It's just a a great game. And and really, if if Winky hadn't gotten hurt that year, that's a another team that for all intents and purposes wins a national championship. But the '98 defense was. Uh, remarkable and and you know very similar to the ninety seven defense that uh, everybody remembers. I man, it's hard to go wrong with with any of these. Uh, I think it was. And I do need to give a shout out for a defense that I was not born for, but I think it was the is it the eighty one defense with uh, Porowski, Paul Porowski, um, just absolutely awesome and. and uh, and went up there and got the fumble against Nebraska and, and was kind of credited with, with helping turn or really turn the tide for the program. Uh, but as far as ones that I was actually alive for, and, and I remember I was born in 85. So honestly, for me, man, it, it was like that 96 defense, the, the meet me there, or beat me there with, with Bulware and Wilson. I mean, those guys, they just put up sack numbers that like, I just don't think you'll ever see again in the sport. You'll ever see in every kid who was our age and was playing playground football was like, all right, I'm, I'm Bullware, you're Wilson. We've, we've got, you know, we've got our jersey tucked under our pads. We've got eight packs falling out. We've got visors free, free on. Count. And we're, we're just, we're just stone cold killers. And yeah, I mean, you know, sack every other play. Meet me there, beat me there. Remember? Yeah. Meet, meet me there, beat me there. I mean, that was. Which should be a home field shirt, by the way. I, I would say, like, like that would sell. We, we we should call up our boys at home field. 
they had 32 and a half sacks yeah. between the two of them that year. I mean, that was incredible. I, I also think that they're notable for like that Florida team they beat was legitimately an awesome Florida yeah. team. And they beat them because they basically just beat the hell out of Danny Warfield. And yeah. I mean, to, what was it? To, to the echo of the whistle? The echo of the whistle, and 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 at the same time they schemed shots. I mean, you know, you had uh, you had Dexter Jackson coming free. You had, I mean, that really was one of the best games. And it's a shame that that team had to then turn around and play Florida again. It, it's yeah, it's really sure. ludicrous. But uh, no, I mean, the '96 defense is a great answer. And you've got the two ends that you talked of, and then you've got uh, the kid who I still think is the highest defensive pack uh, defensive pick in school history. Uh, playing defensive tackle for you on that. Line. Oh, Wadsworth. Yeah. So I mean, that's a uh, that's a real good answer. <laughs> um, that, I mean, that 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 defense was just that was absolutely insane. I, honestly, like that's the kind of defense that inspires teams to go spread option, and and like that that kind of defensive scheme. We talked about this in the last episode, I think. With the, why does Urban Meyer and a couple of those other guys at that same time screwing around decide to go zone read? You know, and, and and try to go back and run the QB. Well, because nothing else was working at the time for the most part. And and Spurrier kind of figured it out a little bit with the fun and gun, although the protection issues weren't great in the NFL. It was like, yeah, we, we, we can beat this. Um, but yeah, uh, where they allow 59 rushing yards per game, I believe it was 94. Oh, you know, Wilson actually started as a D-tackle. I don't actually recall him playing D tackle, but I was probably only six or seven years old when he uh, when he started doing so. Doesn't surprise me. I mean, I, from my recollection, that dude was one of the stronger people to ever ever play at Florida State. I mean, he was just a, an absolute tank. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a part of that Lake City uh, Columbia High School pipeline that Florida State had going so so well there for for that stretch of time. Who were the linebackers in that defense? I'm trying to remember on the '96 defense. 96 defense, uh, don't you have a Crockett? Because I, I don't think – I think Lamont Green really takes over in 97. Uh, Polly is there. Yeah, he's the player of the year and player of the year in the 94 class, if I recall. Because Green signed in 94 or 95. So it says Lamont Green uh, was, was a, a starter as a sophomore on that. Oh, Sam Cowart, duh. He was still around for 96. He was not on the 97 team, I think. Now, 97, I thought, was the year he came back and wore number one. Tears his knee in the 95 or, or first day of 96, I believe, against Notre Dame. Oh, that's okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Kid who originally signed with Georgia, actually. Got it. Okay. Corey Simon is a redshirt freshman on the 96 team. Samari Roll, who was a, you know, we don't talk about like FSU greats that often and, and mention Samari Roll, but... He had a damn fine career, career, and then it was actually a really, really long tenured player in the NFL. Uh, Greg Spires was also a guy who played, I believe, for the Bucks for a while. Who, who was on that team? Those are some good names to go back and be able to talk about. Absolutely. You know, Greg Spires played ten years in the NFL. I, I, I didn't know he played that long, but I remember he he played defensive end at Florida State, almost like he was a, uh, almost like he was a point guard. I mean, he would put he would put basically basketball moves on the offensive tackle, which, you know, when you, <laughs> when you let, when you let Wilson and Bullware wear people out over the first two to three quarters, that's, a, that's probably pretty effective. So, uh, yeah, what a great, great defensive unit. Definitely. Man, I'm tapped out. This was a longer show than I anticipated, but I'm, I'm 
I'm, I'm really enjoying these, and, and I, I know the seasons seasons not real enjoyable right now, but I'm I'm, I'm enjoying doing the shows all the same. All right, y'all. Always appreciate the uh, support that we've received. We're ever so fortunate to be able to do this for as long as we have. Uh, if you have the opportunity uh, to support our sponsors in any way possible, we ask that you please do. And if you get the chance to give us a five-star review on iTunes, uh, we certainly appreciate it. And we always want to thank uh, our Patreons. Uh, they do an awful lot to allow us to do this. And if you're interested in joining, that is patreon.com backslash Nolcast. And uh, until next time, bud, this has been the Nolcast. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles. Thank you.